Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Jadim Sulongkomer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Yelly Waters to talk about his book, In the Shadow of Naga Insurgency, Tribes, States, and Violence in Northeast India, published by Oxford University Press. So, um, Waters, this book has been really enriching to me in a sense that, you know, when uh, when I read this book, uh, I think it, it was that the um, thing was such that this is not only ethnographically rich, right? But then certain theoretical, uh, you know, things are also mentioned here. So it, there is a theoretical lens to this research. So I think that was something which I've always been long to look at for to for any Naga research uh, or any work on Naga research. And I think this is a book or this is a work that has done uh, really justice to that area. So before coming to this book, tell me something about yourself. All right. Uh, first of all, thank you for, for having me here uh, today. Um, uh, I, I'm an anthropologist and I, um, I studied at the University of, of Oxford up, uh, for my MPhil. And after that, I joined Northeastern Hill University in, in Ceylon, uh, where I did my, my PhD. And my PhD was on, on the Naga. It was on, on, on insurgency, but indirectly through uh, the kind of social carryovers and consequences of, uh, of living in the shadows of, of insurgency, as I titled uh, the book later. Um, currently, I lecture at Royal Timbu College, and I'm based in Bhutan for the past, I think, seven years or so. And prior to that, I taught at Sikkim University for about three years and was a visiting uh, faculty at the Eberhard Karls uh, University of Tübingen in, in Germany. Okay, I think uh, that's really great. Uh, you know, with any book, I think there's a story behind any research or coming up with any book as such. And I'm sure uh, there's a story behind coming together of this, uh, your research work and the coming together of this very book. So, uh, I mean, what led you to write this book and also specifically uh, something on the, on insurgency and something on political life of the Nagas? I mean, what led you to this area of research and this work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the selection of a, of a research area uh, is always uh, contingent on, on many factors, um, both personal interest as well as, as perhaps um, uh, social networks that, that may guide you towards a certain area or towards a certain team. Uh, as well as, of course, uh, a certain academic lacuna, a certain academic um, um, uh, gap that, that, that needs to be filled. So what I found in the context of, of the Naga is that there is a great deal of, of scholarship that offers a panoramic overview of the Indo-Naga conflict, which is the oldest conflict, uh, the oldest uh, political military conflict in, in South Asia. Uh, but what we did not have, despite uh, years and years of, 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 of conflict and violence, was an ethnographic study of the Indonaga conflict. So what I tried was to provide uh, an ethnographic underview um, 
not of insurgency and uh, counterinsurgency approach head on, but by focusing on the, the kind of social uh, carryovers and consequences of living in in an area that has been um, under the spell of, of, of violence and conflict uh, for many for many decades. Um, so I think what, what, what informed my book was, was ethnography. I carried out about two years of ethnography in Nagland. Most of it was um, among the Chakasang, uh, which is um, uh, lo- uh, located in so-called Western Nagland, and about an eight, eight months or so uh, in um, Eastern Nagland, among the Chang, which was formerly um, um, an excluded area in the sense that it was not uh, colonized. Right, so part of the fieldwork was in an area that had a colonial history. Another uh, part of my research was in an area that did not have a colonial history, and this history of non uh, of col- of post-colonial existence and non-post-coloniality uh, continue to imbricate in 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 the present day. So I think uh, to cut this short, I think uh, amid the literature that existed on the Indonaga uh, political conflict. Uh, what the, the ethnographic angle was not very pronounced, right? And I, my research was trying to to um, provide that dimension to the, our broader understanding of of conflict and insurgency. Mm, yeah, and that, that's that's really interesting, actually. Um, I mean, uh, I've I, I've seen that uh, you did your PhD from Nehu, right? Northeastern Hill University, the university that I'm uh, currently doing my PhD in now. So. Uh, what really brought you to Northeastern Hill University from the previous university that you were in? Yeah. All right. Um, shifting to, to Northeastern Hill University was really a choice for a supervisor, right? I uh, wanted to work under uh, Professor T.B. Suba, who I'm sure you, you know very closely, right? And I also felt that um, being um, um, doing a PhD from a university within the wider region would give me uh, more, more knowledge, more insight, uh, as well as better access to the field. And I think over the years of of carrying out my my PhD, I've learned as much from my from my my friends, from fellow PhD scholars, right, um, through like the informal chats on a daily basis, to sharing tea, sharing dinner. Right? So it was a continuous process of 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 learning. So I think it was more um, um, it was less detached, right? It was very much. Uh, um, I, I found it to have uh, additional value to, to be in the region, uh, to be in the larger region um, uh, of where I was carrying out my, my field work. And of course, uh, being in Northeast India also gave me access to um, a lot of uh, uh, books uh, and a lot of documents that are very important, but that are not really circulated outside of the region, right? Uh, Northeastern Hill University, the library, um, uh, has a has a good northeast India section, right? And many of those sources are almost impossible to access when you're not actually in the region. Well, that's very interesting. And uh, coming to the people, right? To groups of people. You see, um, when you go and talk and then live with a group of people, then yeah, somehow in certain instances, as anthropologists, your perception also changes. So, what was the, your perception of the Nagas before entering into the field or entering into Nagaland and you know, interacting with the people? I'm sure you, prior to in, going to Nagaland, you had experience or you had met Nagas and you know you had extensively talked to many people. So, what were your you know yeah perception about the Nagas before entering the field as such? Oh, that's uh, quite a difficult question. And 
I had uh, I had Naga friends long uh, long before I actually went went to Nagret. In 2007-2008, I was an exchange student at the uh, at the Northeastern Hill University prior to uh, going to Oxford. And at that point of time, my roommate was a Naga, right? And uh, um, um, over the years, uh, and many of my classmates were from Nagaland or from Naga areas outside of Nagaland. So I had a I had a lot of Naga friends actually before I even set foot uh, for the very first time in in Nagaland. Um, and um, I mean, living in a Naga village, I mean, as an anthropologist, you are changed in the field. You become a, a different person. It's such a valuable, enriching experience that allows you not only to study um, the community you're working with, but it also allows you to, to reflect on your own upbringing. It, it allows you to reflect on your own values um, and your own kind of way of understanding art, understanding society and life itself. Um, so I can only be very grateful to have had this experience, and I I'm greatly thankful to to the people I lived with, right? In both the villages I lived with uh, with a uh, with an extended family, and uh, they um, gracefully and very warmly uh, invited me into their homes, and uh, they I they are they are a part of me in the sense that I've learned so much from them, and um, I I think they have changed me. I I will not find it very easy to pinpoint how exactly. They may have changed me, but um, I'm sure that that they have, and definitely for the better. Mm, yeah, that's 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 really good. Yeah, I mean, the best thing of being an anthropologist is having that kind of experience, right? So that's really interesting to me. Yeah. So you know, trying to set up the foundation in going into this book, you know, what were some of the theoretical lenses that you took up or, you know, what are some of the people, works that have influenced you theoretically, right, in trying to uh, understand or in trying to analyze the data that you have gathered? What were some of the theoretical lenses or the people's work that have influenced this uh, work, actually? Yeah. Okay. Um as I mentioned, I think uh, uh, scholarship on, on the Naga, especially in relation to insurgency, has long been document, uh, kind of dominated by political science kind of top-down analysis that would look at certain historical events, that would look at certain um, uh, petitions that were submitted or certain treaties that were signed and later filled. Uh, but this is quite a narrow view of, of insurgency. So I was, what I wanted to do was to uh, look at the shadows of insurgency. So to kind of acknowledge that among the Naga, um, um, that Naga insurgency has in fact long flooded the banks of political conflict. It rushes, it rushes in a way to all fields of social life. And therefore, I think the theoretical angle that I that I took on was uh, to approach Naga insurgency as a complex, as an insurgency complex. So approaching Naga insurgency as a complex Right, that allows you to move beyond armed conflict in a strict or narrow sense. Instead, it, would, it recognizes how Naga's historical and embodied experiences, in a way, of resistance and state aggression, violence and political volatility, struggle and suffering, how all of those link together, and how these produce long-term mentalities and uh, prejudices, how they shape social norms, how they shape moral evaluations, especially in relation to the state, in relation to corruption, and how they also shape local struggles and magnify interpersonal and intertribal relations. Right Within the Naga fold, of course, you would know this very well, there are countless um, uh, units of, of village, of clan, of tribe, right, of, of range, and all of them kind of uh, mix and mingle 
conflict and come together in expected but also in unexpected ways right so what emerges from this is is not um, is a way it's not a complete transformation of social life right because there are clear continuities between Naga traditions and the present but a situation in which social relationships moral reasoning political sociality as well as contemporary aspirations and culture culturally scripted life projects they're all kind of variously entangled in and complicated by uh, the past and present of, of Naga insurgency. So in terms of theoretical influence, I, I admire the work of, of Alpha Shah, who I think has been able to um, uh, achieve uh, uh, a lot of, to bring in a lot of kind of nuance and, and ethnographic underviews in relation to the Maoist insurgency in, in central India. And she was able to uh, cut through the kind of simplistic dichotomies that supposedly exist between state and non-state actors. And she showed how, in reality, there are so many layers of knowledge, there are so many different kind of stakeholders who all intersect with one another in complex ways. So I would say that uh, Alpha Shah has kind of theoretically, in terms of approach, he has, has put me into the right direction. Uh, there are others, of course, but within the context of India, I would like to, to highlight the work of, of Alpha Shah. Well, that, that's really good. So, trying to unpack the complexity of the uh, Naga society in terms of the political conflict and the uh, political, you know, nuances that are there. Uh, let's go straight into with the book. And uh, the heart of the book uh, starts with uh, the first chapter. For in the heart of the book is clan, village, tribe, and Naga nation. So, what? Uh, really are you uh, trying to point out in this chapter and you know what is your central what is the central take of this very chapter yeah okay um a simplistic view holds that uh, the naga are an homogeneous kind of community that are confronting the indian state right that the naga are an imagined community in the sense of, of benedict anderson right now on the ground we see that um, um the Naga is, is in a way a multi-scalar community. You have all these different levels who are all equally important, right? You have the clan, or you have the Kel, Kel meaning um, village was, usually more of a territorial notion. You have the village, you have the tribe, and you have the Naga nation. And all of these, in a way, are autonomous units. All of them can variously decide to involve or not involve in certain decisions. They can decide to support or not support um, uh, the Naga struggle, they can, as we see very often, we see them coming together uh, for certain political or economic purposes, and other times they are disassociating themselves. Right. So what I tried to do in this uh, in this chapter was to offer an ethnographic view of local process of identity and identification, and in the process go beyond the kind of simplistic notions of, of, of Naga. So I was trying to highlight the social binds as well as divides, that emerge from what I think are the structuring, foundational, and effective realities within the Naga fold, which is clan, village, and tribe. So I'm trying to theorize and understand the Naga not as a single ethnic rubric, but as a kind of a tribal confederacy, in which connected yet self-directed tribes, but also smaller units, continuously uh, fissure and fuse. And I think this allows us for this allows a more kind of complex understanding of the internal politics of within the Naga nation as well. Yeah, that's that's really true. In a sense, um, in a society, understanding the dichotomies from the context itself is something which 
is uh, which is not only enriching but also at the same time it brings out, out the kind of the quality of the research in a sense of how do we understand this complexity from their own terms and then you know try to you know rectify and, uh, and try to implore certain rather than trying to implore certain theoretical instances so i think that is something uh, quite interesting that you have really brought out in this chapter so coming to the next chapter that is uh, titled as ceasefire as conflict fraction taxes and national workers so well, what what are what is the basis of this very chapter, and you know what are you hinting at from this chapter? Yeah, I think here the main argument is actually fairly straightforward, and that is uh, that we need to have a different, uh, more complex understanding of what a ceasefire is. The Naga and uh, the Naga are supposedly in a ceasefire since 1997. Now, what does the ceasefire actually mean on the ground? Right now, theoretically, a ceasefire kind of connotes the cessation of hostilities, its political stasis, political status quo, reconciliation, and of course, peace talk. But on the ground, right, the Indonaga ceasefire manifests itself as a much more complex and, I think, contentious social reality. And it's a social reality that sees the continuation of conflict by other forms and means. Right? Factionalism has become very pronounced after the ceasefire. Right? There was an internal kind of intertribal struggle for, for, for domination, for political legitimacy, as well as for kind of um, uh, the right to tax, right, and the right to represent. So I think the main point here really is that uh, we should change our understanding of what a ceasefire actually is. Ceasefire is also part of a conflict, but it is violence, conflict by, by other means. And what we also see in the during the time of ceasefire is uh, that the boundaries between state and national workers, national workers as um, uh, kind of the, the way Naga uh, caters and underground caters are often often called locally, right? These become much more complex. Um, complex. It is quite kind of theoretically tempting to see the state and non-state as two distinct entities that mutually reject uh, each other's existence. But in reality, there are so many kind of um, overlappings and crisscrossings between them, right? You have many Naga families where some people join the government and other people join the underground and they come together for dinner, right? So it would be very artificial to to kind of uh, not recognize that that insurgency actually and counterinsurgency are actually overlaid by very dense social and political networks that does not really allow one to separate the two. There's also, of course, a darker angle to it. A darker angle to it is all this um, um, uh, mutually beneficial relations that exist between people on, on both sides. And they may have clear stakes in um, the continuation of insurgency. And this is particularly pronounced, I think, in relation to, to state funds and development funds. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really uh, quite an interesting, uh, you know, Kind of decluttering of all of the surface notions of what the political struggle is all about and what ceasefire is all about and trying to really uh, look at it from the very uh, ground level itself and i think that these categories that you have mentioned in the second and the third chapter is something which was very helpful for even for the scholars uh, to come also actually so that they learn these categories and try to understand you know the complexities that are there and then you know they, they try to maneuver through this complexity so uh, coming to the next chapter i think the next chapter is titled as seeing the state violence seduction and neo-tribal developmentalism so what is the argument 
what are your arguments in this book uh, in this chapter i mean yeah 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 um now this this chapter asks how do naga see the state right and um yeah, we can broadly separate into uh, conceptual at least into two phases the first phases was prior to the ceasefire in which the state was primarily associated with with violence then after the ceasefire but also before that it would be artificial to just uh, bifurcate that very neatly um, the state became associated as um, as a dispenser of very generous kind of development funds for many years and i think this is a crucial kind of a question that we have to engage right Nagaland received the highest per capita development funds anywhere in India. At the same time, development indexes show that Naga, Nagaland is not doing very poorly. They are often ranked at the middle, and for some indicators, they are even ranked towards the top, for instance, literacy. Right? So here the question that emerges is that the reason that Nagaland received so much development attention cannot be because they are the poorest part of India. They are not. Right? So this means that development funds must have another purpose. And the purpose um, is, in my reasoning, is the co-optation uh, of Naga insurgency. It is in a way to kind of uh, procure uh, Naga's loyalty or Naga's um, uh, acceptance of their Indian present and future. So when we are trying to see how Naga villages see the state, right? my argument would be that the history of the Naga present, right, is fundamentally shaped by a deeply embodied past of state violence, as well as a certain governmental ambiguity, right? So when we speak uh, to, to villagers, we, we learn that narratives of state repression of past violence continue to be kind of a key arena through which the Indian state is represented, imagined, and understood, right? The state, especially for the elder generations, uh, is almost a synonym for, for violence, right? So Naga historical experience of the state um, um, are in that way very contested, but they're also very multifarious, right? Much changed with the contested creation of Nagaland state in 1963, which was an envisioned, but of course a failed political compromise to the demand for Naga independence, right? But after this, for the very first time, the post-colonial state was no longer essentialized as an external entity, like best resisted, but it also became a localized apparatus. Right, which was with Nagas at the helm, right? And at least formally, they projected the welfare of Nagas as its rational, right? So after that, what we witness is that increasingly, villages came to stake claims on Nagaland state and saw its officers and its officers as a lucrative, but also morally ambivalent source, right? Now, these expectations were significantly nourished by the post-statehood influx of center-directed Largess, right? In the way we, we just discuss, discussed. So this state largess is, um, in my reasoning, is part of a politically driven policy, right? Not a policy that is in response to poverty, but a politically driven policy, what I've called seduction, right? To which the center attempts to deeply penetrate the Naga Highlands and to tie local livelihoods to existing state structures and the political status quo. And in this, if this indeed was the objective, then the Indian state has been fairly successful because a large number of, of Nagas, the majority of Nagas today, directly or indirectly, depend on the state for their sustenance. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, quite interesting. So, yeah, so we have um, the chapter, the firstly, I mean, we have seen the very dichotomies of the social life of the Nagas. And then secondly, we have seen the complexity of 
understanding ceasefire than now. I mean, we have heard about the very complexity of even understanding state itself in Nagaland. Uh, now, the next chapter is titled as Corruption and the Moral Economy of State Resources. So tell me the uh, basic argument in this chapter. Yeah. yeah. So chapter five is very much an extension of, of, of chapter four. Uh, we often hear about corruption in relation to, to Nagaland, right? It's, it's, it's very uh, ubiquitous in, in the public discourse. And Nagaland often, I mean, a lot of Naga writers would also uh, uh, write about this in, in various ways, about the crisis of corruption that's, that is supposed to exist in, in Nagaland. Now here, I, my argument is that we have to understand the nature of corruption a little differently. As an opening example, right? nobody would kind of, at least not, not uh, um, people are reluctant to condemn people who, are, who take money from the state that does not belong to them. But they would criticize if that person would not be sharing that those state funds with his kid and kin and other members uh, of his social network. So my argument here is that we need to move beyond the accusatory tone of corruption and explore the moral reasoning and perspectives villagers adopt in their dealings with the state and its development resources. And in the way in which what to look at how they define corruption when is it right according to them, when it is wrong, when is it justifiable, when it is not justifiable, right? So my view here, based on ethnography, is that there exists a distinct and specific relationship between kind of Naga's historical experiences of state violence and understandings of the post-colonial state. Most Nagas are perfectly aware that the, the amount of state funds that they are receiving is disproportionate. And they're also perfectly aware that they are receiving this for political reasons, right? Now, this has this kind of duality of state violence as well as state largesse has uh, impinged on local subjectivities, moral evaluations, and contested loyalties. Right? And I think in the upshot, what we see is the local emergence of a particular social and moral field in which corrupt practices must, must be situated. Right? Now, this chapter has been kind of uh, read by some and critiqued by some uh, for justifying corruption. That was not my intention. My intention was not to say that uh, corruption is something that is to be appreciated, right? But my argument here was that the kind of accusatory tone of corruption or, or the language of the crisis of corruption, um, a sea of corruption, all of those, that kind of language, that does not really bring out the complexities that exist. That if we want to understand the nature of corruption, what corruption is and what corruption is not, we have to answer that ethnographically. Right? And we can do so by studying the ways villagers interact with, uh, with the state, the way the village development board operates, and the kind of moral uh, and ethical discourses villagers adopt. So I think this was what I, what I tried to do in this, in this chapter. Yeah, and interestingly, in a sense that it's like, the while talking about money and uh, corruption and all, it's also people label certain forms of corruption as corruption and certain forms of corruption as not corrupt in the sense of I know where they are getting their money or resources from. So for example, uh, for example, if a church receives money from a politician, right? right, And if the politician is in a sense, is not using money in a proper proper way, but still the church is receiving, receiving money, then certain, in a certain way, the, the, the church who is receiving the money will not be seen as a corrupt body, right, in that sense. Uh, 
uh, in that sense, even though they are receiving, they might be receiving money which might not be from a proper channel or something like that. So, I mean, do you have any take on this one? Anything to I say think, on this um, one? Um, I mean, in my book, I've also written, I think, on a, on a case study in which uh, state officers are um, using a part of the budget they, they have access to to fund church activities. And what is happening here is that money is being transferred from a lower order uh, entity, which is the state. I'm talking in terms of morality, in terms of how people perceive it, to a higher order entity, which is the church. Right. So I think uh, this is this can be this is often quite self-justified in that way. Right? So the state is used, some would say abused, right, to, uh, to um, uh, irrigate an entity that is much more closest to most Nagas, at least uh, spiritually, morally, which is the church. Right? So I think here again, uh, to simply call this corruption right, would not do justice to the kind of moral reasoning and complexities and nuances that kind of underrate these flows. Yes, yeah, yeah. And and that opens up a more broader way of trying to understand corruption in itself. And I think this chapter is something which really opens up uh, to that one. So moving on to cha- next the ne- next chapter. The next chapter is titled as "The State as Resource: The Quest for Freunder Nagaland." So your argument in this chapter? Yeah. 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 Now the state as a resource also uh, refers to the kind of mutual beneficial links that everyone knows uh, exist and which are ethnographically you can ethn- document them ethnographically between uh, underground cadres and state state officers. And uh, when we talk about taxes, when we um, uh, talk about cuts that are being made, we know that um, state resources are to a very large extent the oxygen supply of, uh, of, of, of most factions, right? So that is the idea of the state as a resource at one level. At the other level, um, I'm using the state as a resource in relation to the demand for, for frontier Nagla. Now, Frontier Nagaland um, 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 calls for the bifurcation of Nagaland state into two independent, uh, two kind of uh, states within within um, within the Indian Union. And the demand for Frontier Nagaland is first and foremost a demand for uh, for access to the state and as well as control over uh, over state resources. Now, there is an important historical angle here, obviously, right? Um, the six communities that um, demand um, they were left out, or they were not colonized. So they have a non-post-colonial history at the moment, right? Uh, the so-called Western Nagas were colonized, right? And their grievance is that um, with colonization also came certain power for, for the Nagas, even though it was a kind of restricted and oppressed power, as well as access to missionaries who brought education, and all of which uh, allowed um, so-called Western Nagas to... Uh, to move up, and when state structures, when Nagaland State was first kind of in, um, enacted, they were able to get uh, most of the jobs. And then we go back to chapter two, in which it is argued that most state um, resources and development projects are channeled through social networks. Right? The argument or the grievance that is being articulated is that uh, so-called Western Nagans were appropriating and redistributing development resources that are meant for the state as a whole to their own. Uh, clans, villages, and tribes, leaving Eastern Nagas um, under underdeveloped. I mean, there are a lot of counter narratives here. There are a lot of more more problems here. But this is the kind of popular notion that is irrigating the the demand for frontier Nagaland. Now, I think the way to see this, right, is that um, uh, the creation of Nagaland state 
even though it was seen as a political solution by some at that point of time, right? when we look at that in hindsight over the past 50 years, we see that it produced new constellations of power, Western against Eastern Nagas. This was not something that was used before Nagaland state was, was brought into existence. It also created new fault lines and new axes of differentiation, including so-called backward and forward tracks, right? These are all kind of state categories that have become politically um, very sensitive. But the argument uh, here is that um, the state is seen foremost as a resource, and that the six Eastern Naga tribes today, what they that they lament and uh, or what they experience is a dominating and exploitative influence of Western Naga tribes, whom they see as advanced, and they accuse them of preventing Eastern Nagas from receiving their kind of development uh, dues. Now, even when we speak with those in support of Frontier Nagaland, interestingly, they would not see this as contravening the rationale of the Naga movement. They would say that this would be a temporary kind of intervention, which is needed for Eastern Nagas to come apart, so that later on they can again jointly um, uh, join a unified kind of kind of Naga limb. So here again we see how political narratives, how understandings of of the Naga future or the Naga political movement has so many different domains. It exists at so many different different levels. And Frontier Nagaland is just another level in that wider discourse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really uh, interesting deck on the very um, idea of the Frontier Nagaland. Yeah, so uh, coming to the last chapter that is performing democracy in Nagaland, um, yeah, your argument in this book, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is part of my kind of broader work on democracy or kind of vernacular democracy. And if you want to put it very kind of um, in a one-liner, the argument would be that Nagalands refuse to adjust themselves to democracy in elections, but adjust the, adjust the democracy in elections to themselves. So on the one hand, I think there are two kind of broad narratives in this chapter. One narrative is that um, um, that the Naga underground, even though they formally reject um, elections as uh, Indian elections in post Naga soil, in reality, they cultivate all sorts of relations with, with politicians, with parties, right? And it is impossible, ethnographically at least, conceptually you can, but ethnographically you cannot separate underground politics and so-called overbound politics. So this is one part of, of, of the discourse. Um, what I basically ask in this chapter is what do ordinary Naga men and women make of the modern democracy they have to engage with? And what we see is that democracy has become yet another avenue for Naga clans and villages and tribes to walk through their differences, to settle pre-existing conflicts, right? Uh, to exert themselves uh, politically. So usually, in most cases, right, um, um, political talk is not about pamphlets. It's not about party politics. It's not about a certain kind of political ideology. The political ideology is uh, is social relations, right? In which clans compete over dominance and property, in which villages contest one another, and in which tribes also vie for power. And there are all these kind of local social alliances that will determine the election outcome. Yeah. So, so uh, since we are done, uh, the ch- we are done with the chapters, and there is an. Um, Epilogue, which uh, is titled as "A Life Beyond the Shadow of Naga Insurgency," and I uh, insurgency, and I presume that uh, you are uh, 
giving some of the uh, your views here and also at the same time trying to look at it from um, uh, look at the Naga situation from a uh, broader lens and also at the same time from a very positive lens. So uh, what 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 is your take here in the epilogue and what are you trying to say here? Yeah, uh, what I'm trying to say and what I'm uh, perhaps criticizing is an excessive attention that is being um, uh, paid to the to the peace negotiations and to a formal settlement. So the discourse or the understanding seems to be that the moment a particular document is signed, that the Indonaga conflict ends the next minute, right? But this this will not be the case because what is uh, um, what what the chapters together show, right, is that uh, it is the shadows of of insurgency, the shadows of insurgency in sense of the the inter inter-clan and inter-tribal conflicts and misunderstandings that have emerged, the development kind of uh, uh, failures, um, the, cor- the corruption, I mean, uh, the, the kind of complexity of, of corruption, right? None of that will disappear when, um, when a peace deal is being signed. So if Naga society is to move from a so-called conflict to a post-conflict society, we have to take a much broader approach, an approach that goes beyond the need for uh, a political agreement, right? So we can argue that a political agreement is a necessary condition. That is uh, fairly uncontroversial to say, right? But it is definitely not a sufficient um, condition. Yeah, and that's that's really great. Uh, this book um, is uh, it's actually ethnographic, very rich, but also at the same time uh, gives a theoretical plant and a lens to it. And I think that well, that is what makes this book really valuable in that sense. It brings out the complexity of the Naga society in that sense. So I think this book will be very helpful for scholars and for, for people who are working on Nordic India, on Nagas in India, and also anywhere else in, in the world who are working on different societies and the issues of you know insurgency and you know violence and democracy and looking at the very complexity of tribe and state and the identity of the people itself. So I think that is something which really uh, comes out from this book. And I think any listeners of this podcast would like to get their hand on this book and really uh, would want to really try to explore this uh, very book. And uh, thank you, Waters, for joining me for this very conversation. Uh, thank you very much. And um, uh, is there any new project or work that you are um, currently working on or looking forward to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm currently quite interested in uh, in in the, the entry of, of capitalist relations, newly capitalist relations, and how they interrelate with with customs and chiefs, and how uh, this is changing kind of the the, the, the the wider the wider landscape. That is one strand of my my current work. Um, the other strand is uh, is in alignment with the environmental humanities, and this is. Uh, to be more, and I think this is also very important in the Naga context, to to broaden our um, um, our kind of uh, to to decentralize the anthropos and anthropology in a way, and to look more at human and non-human uh, relations, including with uh, the environment uh, around us. So I think these are two kind of areas in which I'm slowly trying to to delve. But I still have a couple of things to say about my uh, field work as well. I still have quite some data. That I've not yet uh, used. So in the next couple of years, um, um, that should um, that should come out in some way, some way or another.
what I might mention is that um, early next year, uh, an, um, an edited volume is coming out. Um, this is titled uh, Vernacular Politics in, in Northeast India, Democracy, Ethnicity and Indigeneity. And um, this will come out with OUP as well. And this has um, uh, chapters from other states. Um, we have a lot of great, uh, great contributors um, from, from the region. And uh, what we are trying to do in that book is to uh, look at democracy uh, and elections and, and politics more broadly, uh, the way it has become uh, vernacularized. So I think that is uh, that's an exciting, actually, an exciting new, new, what I think is an exciting new book that is coming out uh, next year. Yeah, I, actually, yeah, very exciting projects and works and also, you know, materials to come ahead. And I think I would request the listeners to also, you know, keep checking uh, out all of these resources that are yet to come and your, your works, right? Uh, thank you, uh, Wooders. Thank you very much for joining me for this very conversation. And take care. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.